The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. We're continuing our walk through Mark 10. Jesus is walking, literally, he's walking on his way to Jerusalem for the final time. Okay, he is walking and coming up in Jerusalem is his arrest, his his beatings, right, his crucifixion, and of course, ultimately, his resurrection. So he's literally walking along the way to Jerusalem. And while he's on the way, he is interrupted by this random man who comes running up to him and asks him a question. Now, this question that he asks him is a question that, quite honestly, has I asked myself for years and years and years. It was a question, quite frankly, that haunted me for years because I did not understand enough about grace. I did not understand enough about Jesus. It's a question that I would bet that we all have asked in one way or another. Whether we ask it to ourselves as we're falling asleep at night in the, in the quietness of our, of our room, the quietness of our bed, and we're just left with our thoughts, and we ask us that. That was me asking myself for years. Or maybe it's a question that we ask you know, someone that we trust, someone that we love, someone that we respect, someone that we, we, we value their input. Or, or maybe it's just the question that we literally just type into Google and see what's out there, just to find what, what, what's the answer. But here's the crazy part about this question that this random man comes and asks Jesus that I think each of us have asked or maybe even are asking. The answer to this question, if we don't get this answer right, it will prevent us from entering the kingdom of God. So, so this is pretty big. Wouldn't you agree? Whatever this question is, we haven't even read the question yet. Whatever the question is, we've all, we're all asking it at one point. I know I asked it for years. And if we get it wrong, we don't get into the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to Mark 10. Let's figure out what, what in the world is this question? What is being asked and, and how does Jesus answer? What is happening? So Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, and if you're new with us, we kind of read a little bit and we talk about it. We read a little bit more and we talk about it. I know different people do it different ways, but that's just what we do, and hopefully it's helpful, hopefully it's effective. Not to say this is the way we'll do it forever, but this is the way we do it right now. So as he, Jesus, was setting on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, you ready? Here's the question. He asked him, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is continuing on his journey towards Jerusalem, and this random unnamed man comes and stops him with a question of eternal consequences. What must I do? A question that I would bet we've all asked, or perhaps even are continuing to ask even now. What do I need to do to have eternal life? In the book of Matthew, this, this account is listed. And Matthew calls this man, uh, he calls him a young man. In Luke's account of this, Luke calls him a, rich, uh, a, a ruler. And in here, we're going to read in a second that he's called a, a rich man. So I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, this guy called the rich young ruler. If you've heard that, that phrase before, that's this guy. And we don't know his name. We just know he's rich, he's young. And he's a ruler. And I think this guy is very genuine in his actions. 
I think he genuinely wants to know what he needs to do to have what Jesus has. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, he's rich. Now, wealth, as in Jesus' society and in our society, is a status symbol. In the Old Testament, people thought that you had wealth because you were blessed from God and you were poor because you were cursed from God. And that's just the way they thought. All right. So this rich man, he runs to Jesus, and what does he do? He gets on his knees. This man of status is on his knees before Jesus. I think he was sincere. I mean, the wealthy don't get on their knees for anybody. I, I think he's sincere. I think he's genuine. So he's rich, but yet he's on his knees. The second reason I think that he's genuine is because he's young. And youth is not known for humility, right? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, when we were kids, when we were youth, and I'm still, I mean, obviously younger than, than a lot of us here today, but when we were teenagers, when we were youth, we always knew better than our parents, didn't we, right? We, but now as we grow, that doesn't guarantee that we grow in humility, but as we grow, we start to realize, wow, there's a lot I don't understand, But listen to what this young man does. This young man who usually youth know everything, what does he do? He asks a question. I think he's sincere. This rich man is on his knees and this young man is asking for advice. And the third reason I think, just personally, that he is actually sincere in his questioning is because he's a ruler. Now, Luke doesn't tell us in Luke's gospel what he's a ruler of. But rulers tend to tell others what to do, right? I mean, just in general, a ruler will tell others what to do. But what does this ruler do? He asks Jesus what to do. So I think that this rich man who's on his knees, this youth who's asking a question, this ruler who's being asked to to be told what to do, I think he's sincere. I really do. I think he's sincere. I could be way off on this, but I think that he is sincere. And so... You would think that this sincere question from this guy who's right, he's not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees from uh, last week, they were trying to test Jesus and trying to trick Jesus. This guy, I think he's like that. He's on his knees. He's asking, I I need info that you have. And so what does Jesus do? We, we would think that Jesus would give him some a response, a genuine response in relation to the genuine question. But what does Jesus do? Listen to this. Jesus says, Verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not saying that he is not equal with God here. But what Jesus is doing, he's getting to the root of the man's question. The lips of the man is saying one thing. He's just saying, what do I need to do? But, but, that's re- but Jesus seeks to reveal the heart of what's wrong with this man's thinking. The man is wanting to know what he must do to be as good as God. And Jesus is quick to say, look, no one is good except for God alone. And so Jesus gives him some law. Look at verse 19. He says, you know the commands. Do you know what you're taught to do in order to be good? He says, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus reads off about half of the first 10 commandments of the 613 commandments that we have in the Old Testament. And he reads these off. He says, do these things. You know what it takes to be good, as good as God. Do these. Why would Jesus do this? We know that keeping the Mosaic law cannot produce righteousness. We know that. In fact, 
Paul says in, in Romans 5.20 that the law was given so that sin would increase, not so that righteousness would increase. So why would Jesus say, hey, go, go do the law? You know the commandments. Go do this law. You see, the rich young ruler, while he is sincere in wanting to have what Jesus is representing, eternal life, relationship with God, while he's sincere, he believes or he presupposes that being good before God is linked to his behavior before God. He thinks, just like the Pharisees, that if his behavior is good, then he is good. But I think he's unlike the Pharisees in that he's actually genuine and wants to know what he needs to do. The Pharisees, they didn't want to listen to Jesus. They were trying to trick Jesus. But this guy, he's genuine. So he's not like the Pharisees in that. But I think he's just like the Pharisees in that he thinks that goodness before God is linked to what he can do with his behavior. And so he asks, what must I do? What behavior should I perform? What things do I need to modify in my actions in order to have eternal life? And this is what the guy says. Now put your feet in this guy's shoes. Verse 20. This rich young ruler, he says to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept since my youth. Sounds a little far-fetched, right? I mean, honoring your father. My daughter is two and a half. Can I get a witness, April? I mean, she has already violated honoring her father and her mother. But for whatever reason, this guy thinks in his mind that according to the law, he's blameless. According at least to these six things that Jesus lists off, he thinks in his mind he is guiltless. Is he guiltless? Of course not. We know he's not. Because to violate even one law of the 613 is to violate all of them. But read with me. Jesus, verse 21 Jesus, looking at him, look at this, loved him. And he says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And Jesus loves him. As messed up as his understanding was, Jesus loved him. And Jesus loved him enough to tell him, to reveal to him, to show him that he lacks one thing. I think this is ironic. If you were here last week, you'll, 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 you'll see this. I think this is ironic that this rich young ruler is told by Jesus that he lacks something. Last week, do you guys remember what had piled into Jesus' lap? It's kids, right? These kids that probably didn't have a, a wooden nickel. But Jesus didn't say that they lacked anything. They didn't have anything. In fact, Jesus said, unless you have faith like these children, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. They didn't lack it, but this man with all the stuff, he lacks something. But Jesus loves him enough to expose the one thing. And how does Jesus expose the one thing he lacks? By giving him something to do. I mean, isn't that what the guy was looking for? He asked Jesus for something to do. All the laws he had kept since his youth weren't enough. He knew that there was something more, something else. All the religious behavior modification, law-keeping, it couldn't do what he was looking for. He was looking for something else to do. 
So Jesus gives them something else to do in order to be perfect. Something else to do in order to be good. Something else to do in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, go, sell all your stuff, liquidate your lands, your camels, your rubies, give it all away. Then you'll be good enough to inherit eternal life. So he finally gets his answer, right? He finally gets his answer. And so what does the rich young ruler do? I got my answer. We're going to have a garage sale, right? Yard sale. Buy one camel, get one free. I mean, we're going to have it right here, right now. What, isn't that what you would think he would do? I mean, he got his answer. What to do? Verse 22 says this. Disheartened by the saying, he, the rich young ruler, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus' answer of go and sell your stuff revealed the one thing he lacked. His heart was centered on himself. His heart was centered on his stuff instead of on God. You see, Jesus could have simply listed, you know, don't love anything else more than you love God with the other commands that he listed. And if he had just listed that quickly, the, the, the rich young ruler probably would have said, yep, I've done that, because he probably would have thought he had done that according to his standard in his mind. But Jesus loves him enough. He loves him enough to address the root issue, the root thing that he's missing, that he, in fact, does not love God. On several occasions, Jesus is asked to summarize all of the law. And Jesus says, if you take all 613 laws and you boil them down into two things, Jesus says on several occasions, this is what you'd have. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and sometimes he adds in your strength. And then the second thing is, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So in essence, Jesus says, if you keep these two simple things, reduce all 613 down into two, you keep these two things simply, you simply keep them perfectly you perfectly love God and you perfectly love others, you will be perfect. Seems pretty easy, right? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. You don't have to memorize 613. Let's just memorize two. Love God and love people. What's so hard about that? Well, this rich young ruler found out the hard way that though he thought he had done really good, he was smacked in the face with the reality that he did not love God more than he loved his own stuff. He was smacked with the reality that he did not love others more than he loved his own stuff. His response, the fact that he was sad and he went away with, with, uh, because he had, he was sad because he had great wealth, his response revealed the fact that he was, in fact, a lawbreaker, just like everyone else. He neither loved God, nor did he love people. His stuff, the possessions he owned, were greater to him than the priceless possession of the very one who was standing in front of him, the pearl of great price, Jesus himself. It's as if the man's possessions actually possessed him. It's like the stuff he owned ended up owning him. And he did not love God enough to let his stuff go. He didn't love people enough to give it to them. So in essence, the real question of what this man is asking is, Jesus, what do I need to do in order to be as good as you, as good as God, to have heaven? And Jesus' response was simply, in order to inherit what God has, you must be perfect. You must be perfect and you 
lack this perfection. You must love God perfectly. You must love others perfectly. And by you being not willing to give your stuff away, it shows, it reveals that you lack this perfect righteousness. You don't love God perfectly, and you don't love people people perfectly, if at all. What hopelessness. What absolute hopelessness. This man walks away sad, and without saying anything more, Mark, who wrote this, has said it all. Complete despair, complete hopelessness. Now, usually, this is where the teaching of the rich young ruler ends. And a moralistic application is drummed up by the teacher, and he'll say something like, now, you don't want to go away sad, do you? So you need to give away all your stuff to someone. You need to be at least willing to give away. We've heard this, right? I've preached this before. You need to be at least willing to give away all your stuff or else you don't really love God or else you don't really love people. But is that what Jesus is telling him to do? That if he, in fact, did give his stuff away, he would be as good as God? No. He asks him to do this because Jesus knows the heart of this man. And it reveals that he doesn't love God. It reveals that he has violated the law, even though he thinks he hasn't. Is Jesus teaching this rich young ruler and us today that we can actually inherit the kingdom of God based on doing certain things? Man, listen, we are too much like this rich young ruler, always looking for things to do in order to warrant our place in heaven. But Jesus is standing here teaching the exact opposite. By asking this rich young ruler to give away his stuff, Jesus reveals that he lacks something. He lacks true righteousness. He lacks true holiness. You see, Jesus does this often. Jesus teaches the law to those who wanted to put their hope in the law. To people who thought that they could achieve holiness by doing things and not doing other things, Jesus was quick to teach law to them. To those who did not put their hope in the law, man, Jesus went straight to grace. But Jesus used the law to do what the law was intended to do, to bring us to a point of despair, to bring us to the point of hopelessness, to realize, man, I don't have it. You know Jesus does this all the time. Jesus was, was teaching, and he says, so you've heard it say, do not commit adultery. And you think that because you haven't done the act of adultery, you think you're righteous. But I want you to understand what, what that actually means. If you even have lusted in your heart for another woman, you are guilty. So how's your righteousness now? And other times Jesus would say, you you really think, you've heard it say that you should not commit murder. And so you, because you haven't slit someone's throat, you think that you're righteous by the law. But I want you who are putting your hope in the law to really understand what that means. If you even hate someone, you have murdered them in your heart. How's, How's your righteousness now? Jesus would teach law to do what the law was intended to do, to bring us to the end of ourselves. Say, oh my goodness, I I don't have what's required. When Jesus, a man came to Jesus, he says, Jesus, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but who's my neighbor? Wanting to be justified by his actions, and Jesus tells him a story. He says, all right, a fellow Jew falls in the hands of some robbers, and this only person, the only person who shows kindness to him is a hated Samaritan. And Jesus says to him, "Are, are you willing to love a hated Samaritan as much as you love your own self? No? I I didn't think so. How's your righteousness now? 
Jesus would teach law to people who are putting their hope in the law to reveal that they lack one thing, true righteousness, true holiness. The whole reason God gave Moses the law was to show people that goodness, that righteousness, that holiness cannot come except from through God himself. Jesus was a man born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians says, and he used the law for what it was intended to do, to bring people to the end of themselves in desperate need for the righteousness of another. The law shows us the one thing we lack, true righteousness, true holiness. In fact, Isaiah says that our own righteousness is like a filthy what? Filthy rag. This is why Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to end the law. He came to fulfill it. You see, Jesus' death and burial and resurrection was not done to end the perfect requirement of God so that all sorts of sin and vile, wicked things could now come before God. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, meaning that he came to perfectly obey it in every single way. When we believe in Jesus, we are actually given the full and total complete obedience record of Christ Jesus himself, who perfectly fulfilled every single requirement of the law. Sin will never be in the presence of God. And I've said this a bunch ever since I read it in a book. A tissue paper has more hope on the surface of the sun than a sinful man in the presence of a holy God. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it so that you and I who believe in Jesus are totally also fulfilling the law and every requirement of it. Not because of your actions, but because of the righteousness of another. The Christ himself. So we're not going to stop here and perpetuate this continued rampant misconception that we need to do something in order to get in the kingdom of heaven. Because that's normally where it stops. We're going to keep reading. In verse 23, Jesus looks around at his disciples and he says this. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And this is groundbreaking to these disciples. Again, remember, all throughout the Old Testament, riches, wealth was a surefire sign of God's blessing. That's what they thought. And poverty and sickness was a surefire way they thought of God's cursing. So the, this is blowing the fuses of the disciples. They're thinking to themselves, how in the world is this possible that, that Jesus is saying it's difficult for the rich to get in? And Jesus says it further. In verse, it continues, he says, but Jesus says to them again, he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I love how vividly Jesus puts things. All right. Just two weeks ago, he was talking about amputating flesh, cutting it off and all this stuff. And now he's painted one of the most imaginable pictures ever. We think about it. We, we imagine it as we read it in our mind. A camel going through the eye of a tiny needle. Why is Jesus being so harsh with people and their wealth? Is Jesus being harsh with them because in general people of wealth 
they'll love their stuff more than they love God? Well, I mean, maybe. I mean, that's probably a fair generalization. But we have to remember, guys, that wealth is relative, right? Wealth is relative. I want everybody right now just to think of somebody in your mind. You don't have to close your eyes. Uh, Just think of somebody in your mind who's wealthy. Just think of somebody. Picture their face. Picture their name. All right? Picture somebody who's wealthy. Maybe you thought of a celebrity, right? Maybe you thought of a, of a member of the Walton family, right? You know, Sam Walton, you know, you got like the top five people are, that, that are the richest in the world are named Walton, right? Sam's Club and Walmart. Maybe you thought of the CEO that owns your company that you work at. You know, maybe you thought of somebody. But I would bet, not, maybe not everyone, but I would bet that most of us did not think of ourselves. Just, just a thought. Maybe somebody did. But I would bet that most of us would not have thought of ourselves. We tend to base wealth on where we are financially. People who have more than we have, well, they're wealthy. But I'm not. In America, the Department of Health and Human Services defines the poverty line for a family of four, which we have. You guys have family of four. You guys have family of four. Right? A lot of us have family of four. You guys have family of four. Family of four, the poverty line, at $23,000 a year, which is about 65 cents a day, right? $65 a day, sorry. $65 a day, $23,000 a year. The median income in Crozet, the median household income in Crozet is $80,000. So most of us in Crozet would probably look at the people who are making $23,000, $65 a day. We would probably say, yeah, they are poor. And sure, in America, it's probably tough for them to get by with the prices of things in America. But did you realize that the vast majority of the world's population, the vast majority of the people that we're going to be with in Guatemala next week, the vast majority of people probably in Argentina, the vast majority of the people in the world, they earn $2 a day? $2 a day. If there's a husband and a wife earning both $2 a day for the annual household income, that's $1,460 for the year. I would think that they would look at the poor in America who are making 23000 and call them rich. The average people in the world will look at the poorest of America and say, you're wealthy. Now, we look at the poor in America and say, wow, you're poor. The average 80000 home in Crozet. We have to remember that wealth is relative. Why am I saying this? Hopefully, I'm communicating that Jesus just might be talking about us. He just might be talking about you, about me. When we think of the rich, we tend not to think of ourselves. We tend to think of someone else. But when the majority of the world thinks of rich, they think of you. They think of me. So we must look at ourselves. We must Examine our own heart and our own minds when we hear these words, these vivid description that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the wealthy to enter heaven. It's far too easy, guys, for us to rely on what we have. It's far too easy for us to rely on what we could do to enter heaven than on what it really takes. I'm just saying that, guys, we might in this room, there might be those who still lack this one thing, no matter how much money you have. And verse 26 says, they were, the disciples were exceedingly astonished. 
Their, their, their mind is blown. Their circuits are fried in their brain. Because again, Old Testament ideology is that the rich are blessed from God. And they say to Jesus, who then can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, Jesus, they're the ones that are, they thought, receiving God's blessing, then who can be saved? How in the world is salvation attainable if even those who are wealthy are not guaranteed eternal life? And here comes, I think, the point of this whole interaction with the rich young ruler, the whole thing. I think it all boils down into this one sentence, verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. With man, entrance into heaven is simply impossible. The law was given to prove it. Man can never enter heaven on his own. Man's heart at birth is deceitfully wicked. It's impossible for man to save himself, no matter the riches, no matter the dedication to the law, no matter the religion. It's impossible. And the one thing that this rich young ruler lacks is lack by all men, true righteousness and true holiness. But here's the good news. Because that's pretty, if he just ended there, we're like, man, lunch is going to be kind of a drag today. But it doesn't end there. With men, it is impossible. But not with God. Amen. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. The law and all the do this and don't do these things was given to show us that we could never in a million lifetimes perfect ourselves. Salvation is only possible with God. God must supply the one thing we lack. He must supply true righteousness and true holiness. We could never cut ourselves away from the sin that's in us, but God can. We could never perfect the sin-stained inner man who's united to the sin-stained flesh, but God can. We can never offer a sinless sacrifice to satisfy God's judgment against sin, but God can. We can never appease the holiness of God by keeping rules, but God can. We can never sanctify that which we stained with sin, but God can. We can never release ourselves from our guilt and our shame, but God can. We can never pay the debt that we owe God, but God can. We can never free ourselves from our chains, But God can. We can never birth ourselves from the very loins of God. But God can. We can never, ever do anything to inherit eternal life. But God can. We can never produce the one thing we lack. True righteousness. But God can. And God did. All these things with Jesus. Jesus completely fulfilled the requirements of God's standard for perfect holiness. Jesus completely absorbed the wrath of sin on the cross. Jesus completely died and our old man was completely buried with him. Jesus completely removed every single last sin that stood between you and the Father. Jesus completely rose from the dead. And that same power that raised Jesus raises you a new life, a new creation from God. And this new created inner man is created, Ephesians 4.24 says, in the very likeness of God with what? With true holiness and true righteousness. The one thing you lack, God gives. Jesus completely separated your new inner man from your 
old flesh that we still have so that no, that sin is no longer imputed into the man, new man. Sin is now quarantined in the flesh. We can never taint the new man that Christ has made in us. Jesus completely unites himself to the new man. Jesus completely dwells in you. It's your hope. It's your hope for glory. Jesus has completely saved you. He's completely sealed you. He's completely sanctified your inner man. And now, as we set our minds on that reality, as we set our minds on him, he renews our mind so that the completed work of Christ in us now shines through us to this unbelieving world. The one thing you lack, God provides and God alone. With man, yeah, it's impossible. You can never do. You can never, ever attain, create true righteousness. But God can. All things are possible. With God, there is no more lacking. If any man be in Christ, he is a new, say it, creation. New creature. New species. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Jesus in him, we have the one thing that we'd always lacked on our own. True righteousness and true holiness. And Peter wants to make sure that he's in. In verse 28, Peter actually says, okay, Jesus, see, we've left everything and we followed you. So um, are we in? <laughs> right? Like, uh, did we foolishly like, leave everything? Like, what, what's up with us? Are we in? And Jesus very quickly says to him, Listen, I, I, I say to you, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for me. Literally Greek, for me. As it's translated here, for my sake, but literally Greek, for me and for my gospel. No one who leaves for me will not receive a hundredfold now. In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, certainly with persecutions. And in the age to come, you receive eternal life. But many who are first will end up being last. And the last will be first. I think this is so cool that Jesus says that those who have embraced him, those who believe in him, that he says these things we have now, not in this world, in this realm, but Jesus says in this time, clearly in the kingdom of God, we have now lands, brothers. That's why we can say brother in Christ, not brother in the flesh, but brother in Christ, sister in Christ, mothers, houses, etc. The kingdom of God is real. It's now. We can't see it with these eyes. But what if we began to truly believe? That is where we live. That is where we are from. That's where our citizenship is. If we begin to live in the reality of that world here in this world, you know what ends up happening? The fame of God begins to be spread through us to our neighbors and to the nations. Isn't it cool that Jesus does not say that you will receive fathers? He says you'll receive sisters and brothers and mothers and children. But he doesn't say you receive fathers. Why is that? Because God is one. And he, we all receive through Jesus. 
And he gives us a spirit by which we cry, Abba, which in Aramaic just simply means Daddy. Daddy. Jesus says we'll face persecutions. But persecutions themselves are a sign that we are not from this world. The world will hate us, Jesus says. But that's okay. Because the Father and the Son love us and have embraced us. And as our journey marker says for the day, in Jesus, we have the one thing we'd always lack on our own. True righteousness. True holiness. As our band makes their way up this morning to close us out in a time, we're going to close out in a time of of music and and of prayer and meditation and But before I pray over us, I'd like to ask you a simple question. Just a very simple, poignant question. If I could have your attention real quick. Do you lack this one thing? Do you lack the one thing that really even matters? True righteousness. Do you lack it? I'm afraid that it's so easy for us in our culture in America to be so like the rich young ruler who in this world we have everything. But at the same time, we have nothing that really matters. It is impossible for you to do in order to be a part of God's family. It's impossible. You must be born again in order be a part of his kingdom do you lack this one thing the one thing that matters the only thing that matters true righteousness before a truly righteous god do you lack this believe believe in jesus because he in him we have the one thing that we'll always lack on our own true righteousness Jesus preached the law to those who thought they could gain righteousness through the law to show them that they were empty. Jesus stands, says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Do you lack the one thing that matters? Believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus and Jesus alone can rescue you from yourself, can give you what you can never give yourself, the righteousness of another. As a church, what do you think would happen if we actually began living in this world in the reality of what we already have in the other world of the kingdom of God? I mean, think about that. What would happen as a church if we started living in that reality, in that confidence? What would our homes be like? What would our schools be like, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our city? What, if, what would Crozet look like if we began every day living with the realization that in Christ we lack nothing? That in Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1. That as Ephesians 5 says, that because of Christ, We have been sanctified, cleansed, 
presented to Christ himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy without blemish. As our minds are set on this reality that in Christ we lack nothing, the very love of Christ himself that's in us begins to leak through us, to flow through us to this dark world around us, into our city, into our streets, into our spouses, into our children. When that happens, the very fame of God will be spread. That's the kind of church I want to be part of, right? That's the kind of church that sets cities ablaze with the very love of Christ, the kind of church that spreads the fame of God. That's the kind of church I pray we become. The church that lives in the reality that in Jesus we have the one thing that we'd always lack on our own. True righteousness. True holiness. Let's be that church. Right? Let's be that church where we see the very fame of God spread as the very life of Christ is manifest through us. And darkness itself is pushed back by the very light of Christ through us. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Father, for this graphic reminder that in Christ we have the one thing that we would always lack on our own. True righteousness. True holiness. God, I pray this morning, I beg with you, if there's anyone here this morning in the sounding of this word that, would, that is putting their hope in the righteousness of themselves, that's putting their hope in something that they could do, God, I just pray that they would hear Jesus' graphic warning saying it's easier for, for you with that mindset to, enter, to put a camel through the eye of a needle than to enter heaven with that mindset. It's impossible. But God, with you, it's done. God, may we come before you this morning. Those who do not believe in God, may, may you open their eyes to see, open their hearts to believe the reality of you and your son, Jesus. God, for those of us in this church that do believe, God, help us to see further the reality of what's in us, true righteousness, that there's nothing more for us to work for because we have the one thing we'd always lack. We have it. It's in us. Christ in us. It's done. God, help that to flow, to leak, to flame through us. God, let these bodies be no longer instruments for sin, but instruments for godliness. Help us to set our mind on you, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.